as one author notes this way, he says, quote, Shem's genealogy presents God's gracious presence in the midst of prideful humanity. This is what we will learn from the genealogy. You see, the revisiting of Shem's line right here in chapter 11, after the Babel event, functions in the text as a kind of reformation statement. The genealogy, you're not saying, but but I'm just reading the name. Why are you reading the names is the question. Why is it contained here immediately after Babel? Because, beloved, it functions in the text of Holy Scripture as a kind of reformational statement of which you are probably familiar. After darkness, light. This is the presence in the meaning of Shem's genealogy. In other words, its inclusion here its strategic placement by Moses as he pairs the texts together, immediately following God's act of judgment upon humanity, provides us with confidence that God's redemptive program has not stopped. And as we proceed... Through the genealogical record, not only do we see that God's redemptive program has not ceased because he just judged man, but there's a godly line that persists. Not only has God's redemptive program not stopped, but the entire operation of God's redemption of sinful mankind is established upon the operations of grace. This you must receive from this genealogical record. For, you see, if God's judgment at Babel was complete, If God's judgment as he looks upon mankind is exhaustive, then as the psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, you, O Lord, should mark in me iniquities exhaustive, if you should truly, completely see all of my iniquities and you marked them, O Lord, who could stand? This you're thinking in Babel, because we just faced a tremendous judgment upon mankind, yet it is not exhaustive. Grace still abounds. For if God exhaustively disciplined and judged mankind at Babel, not one man would be left standing. There would be, including, no godly line of Shem. For the answer to the psalmist, and each of us knows this, but it's good for us this Lord's Day to be so reminded. If you, let's just consider it, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, 
If it was on a ledger between me and you, oh Lord, who, who out of anyone could ever stand? And the answer rhetorically, obviously we know, but it's good to so be reminded, no one is the answer. No one from among us could stand. No one at Babel, no one ever since, and no one in the future. For Isaiah the prophet reminds us, all of us, all we, in a text you are undoubtedly familiar with, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone, collectively and then individually, we have turned everyone to his own way. And so Isaiah then concludes, and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is similar as Isaiah speaks of the Lord's action taken on our behalf. That as we learn from the fallout of Babel in the emergent line of Shem and his godly offspring, we learn that even in judgment, grace is operative. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I read for you a text once again. You don't need to turn there. I'll simply read it for you. Um, as you hear the thought of the psalmist and you're renewed this Lord's day and once again reminded of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf, as the psalmist says, as we consider judgment, indeed, it could not be exhaustive. For if, O Lord, if you should mark my iniquities, again, who could stand answer no one from among us? The promises rest on grace not performance. I remind you of this text as I read again, the one you're familiar with, you don't need to turn there. Let me just simply read it for you. Is Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 3, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Right, and Isaiah says the same thing. All of us, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We, every one of us, have turned everyone to his own way. So Paul, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were also, by nature, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, all of us, so says Isaiah, so also Paul. And as Isaiah says, yet the Lord intervened. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So also, Paul, you recognize verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Unless we somehow read that wrongly, 
and thought it must be by performance and achievement. Paul adds very clearly, by grace you have been saved. And then he picks back up in verse 6 to continue. And he raised us up with him. And he sat us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then the great conclusion of what you know very well. For by grace. You have been saved through the empty vessel, through faith. And then just to be clear, as we consider the disaster of Babel and the emergence of a godly line. But indeed, if he marked anyone's iniquities, not a single line would have prevailed. Paul also says, that's right. For by the means of grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. As we look out and experience our blessings in the gospel, Paul wishes to remind us as we scope from Genesis to Revelation, this is not a result, beloved, of working. So that no individual anywhere at any time ever may boast. Martin Luther in a hymn that we have sung numerous times of which you will be undoubtedly familiar. Describes it beautifully which raises the congregation every time we think and consider such words. And we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther speaking again as the psalmist will say, if you, O Lord. Should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? The answer from us, whether it's Isaiah or Paul, the answer is no one from among us. But then Luther hits a beautiful pitch as he reminds us of the joys and the power of the gospel. Did we, in our own strength, confide? And now you're pairing it with Babel. Indeed, did we, in our own strength, confide? What would be the result, as we considered even last week from the psalmist, unless the Lord does build, he says, our striving would be losing. But as we know, as we have received the Lord Jesus Christ and so rest upon him in these moments, that is not the conclusion of the redemptive historical blessings and story. Rather, as Paul did just speak to us in Ephesians 2, so Luther says, but we're not the right man. Well, 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 who could withstand the judgment? Lord, if you marked iniquities, who could stand but one? Well, well, and so Luther, to, to, we're not the right man on our side. Marking him out as the man of God's own choosing. And in the great gospel proclamation of which we think, who is it? Who is the man of God's own choosing? Dusk indeed, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord of armies or Lord Sabaoth, his name. He is principally and always from age to age, he is the same. And he must win the battle. 
This is a story of the genealogy. This is the emergence of the godly line of Shem. It will not be Shem who will deliver the people. Indeed, it won't even be Abram. There is but one man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age, the same he, he must win the battle. As the saints of Christ gathered this morning on this Lord's day, we rejoice and we have already sang, we've already confessed together. So shall we again that we say this morning that he has decisively won the battle. We rejoice and we gather this Lord's day because of that truth and we await the great day as we have sang just a few moments ago when the trumpet shall sound. We will once again gather not only has he won decisively the battle, but so also in the end of all things, he will win the battle. I speak to my own kids about this. We were speaking about a little bit of this in Sunday school. Um, again, how does God ordinarily work, though? How, how does he work? Because we're, we're in the same quarter as you all, uh, me and the youth group. Uh, we're, we're in the same quarter as you, history, the, the history of the church. So as we speak about church history and we're describing it, how does God often work? In time. Well, he often works in time. In somewhat non-miraculous ways, he often works in the ordinary. And that is what we see in this genealogical record. We see, indeed, how will the Lord Jesus win the battle? So how shall we be saved? Well, we catch a glimpse of the means to that end in God's redemptive program right here in Genesis 11. If you'll join with me in Genesis 11, we're there in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. This is the ordinary means whereby God will do extraordinary things in the calling of Abraham and the establishing of the church and the man of God's own choosing born in history in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkashad two years after the flood. So again, more notations leading us to the year 2000. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkashad 500 more years, and he had other sons and daughters. Jump down to verse 16, as you notice, quickly, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, 16. When, when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Now, of course, I know none of us have memorized the ancestral accounts here. So maybe you didn't notice what just occurred. You notice very uh, keenly in verse 16 that Eber lived 34 years. He fathered Peleg and Eber lived and he fathered Peleg. And oh yeah, he had other sons and daughters. Verse 18, when Peleg... So you go back in the account just a moment ago and we read a little bit of a different structure within the genealogical record of Shem's descendants. In verse 25 of chapter 10 to Eber, oh, here we go. This is the same text, but it isn't. Verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided. And, and then we find out about the brother. And the brother's name was Jochten. And Jochten fathered and so on and so forth. That is not what we see within the genealogical record here in chapter 11. Again, after darkness, beloved. After darkness, light. Eber lived and he fathered Peleg. Where's Jochten? Well, there were other sons. 
But that line is ending. But the godly line shall continue. Jochten and sons got what they invested. They sought for themselves a name among the city of man. And they are no more. You see, what we're given here in this ancestral account that tidied up Shem's family line and saw Jochten and those who, with his sons, 13 sons, settled eastward and then moved yet again further east, joining in Babel and then creating the Babelic project of building a tower in rebellion to God, they had their good gifts in time. They are remembered in the biblical account no more. Because here, as the godly line of light continues after the Babel darkness, we are given the ancestral account of Jesus Christ and of his church. You see, these are they, preserved in the biblical record in this genealogical account of chapter 11, these are they, beloved, to whom God is pleased to commit himself to be their God. And they to be his people. It will solemnize in Abraham. And, and we'll get to that where, where Abram will hear the call of God in such a powerful manner as to say, I will be a God to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will be a God to your little ones. And they, the little ones, will be my people. We'll see this solemnized in covenant history in Abraham. But it is right here in this genealogical record by ordinary providence displayed. There is, by dad and mom, a birthing of a godly seed. There is, by a dad and mom, a birthing of a godly seed. There is, by a dad and mom, the birthing of a godly seed. As one author comments this way regarding Shem's lineage, he says, quote, These bearers of the image of God. These contained here in this genealogical record are the legitimate rulers of God's creation. They are the seed that will destroy the serpent. This is the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I wish to make this a little bit more clear as we work towards the end of our time together. So pivotal is this genealogical record, again, for more than names and dates and places and seasons and times, for theology. Because he must win the battle. Turn with me, if you will, if you have an open biblical text, I won't stay long. I'm going to wind down our time together in the next hour and a half. But if you could make it over to Luke, just very quickly, if you could make it over to Luke chapter 3, because Luke sees what we see. Well, probably because of Luke, we see what we see. We're together and of one accord. Luke chapter 3, if you could, just for a brief moment. Just for a brief moment. Because you see, Luke recognizes the same genealogical record as being pivotal, or as we could call it, ground zero in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you're there in chapter 3, I just wish you to see it beginning in verse 23. I'm not going to read all of the names. I'm simply going to make a couple of highlights, and we'll jump right back towards our time in Genesis 11 and work towards our conclusion. But if you're there in Luke uh, 23, and you remember something significant about Luke's gospel is he is a, a great doctor at keeping and, and, and analyzing records. Remember at the beginning of it, just two chapters ago, he said, I interviewed, I worked the list, I, I listened to testimony, and I have the records. Here he is making the record to, again, give us that strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here in verse 23, Jesus, uh, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Seems similar to our dating process. Roundabout. Uh, uh, being the son, as was uh, supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he starts tracing the genealogical record backward. If you jump up to our interest this morning, is beginning in verse 34. The son of Jacob... Okay, now we're hitting patriarchs. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, indeed, the son of Abraham. Then you notice, oh, now he's getting into the nitty-gritty. He's getting into the weeds. And then if you look over at Genesis 11, in just a moment, you notice the exact same record. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Seru, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah. And so on and so forth. And if you're back in Genesis 11, you recognize it's the godly seed. Verse 38 of Luke's gospel then uh, winds it all the way down. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, that is the godly offspring for Adam. And then that is the son of, uh, or the son of Adam, the son of God. That is firstborn in created time of his image. Adam the taproot of human history. You see, when we carefully consider the genealogical record, and if you work through that genealogical record and you pair it with what we see here in Seth's line, which is recorded, which is Luke drawing from this same family lineage to arrive at none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who began his ministry at 30. You notice if we carefully consider the genealogical record, we realize that what we're learning is more than mere names, dates, lands, and times. Beloved, we are learning through the genealogical records themselves the significant confirmations of the central claims of the gospel. We are learning through this genealogical record, and if we had time, and we don't, I promise... But if we had time and we went piece by piece and name by name and story by story, we would recognize that central proclamation within the gospel, namely this. God is gracious to sinners in Jesus Christ. How do we gather that from the genealogical record if we were to go name by name, person by person, throughout the genealogical record of our own Lord Jesus Christ in time? the man of God's own choosing, and he did and he will win the battle. How do we gain all of that from a genealogical record? How do we see the central claim of the gospel in the names of a genealogical record that God is gracious to sinners in Jesus Christ? The answer is this. Among those listed within that genealogical record, I'm sure you are well aware, are known murderers. Liars, adulterers, cheaters. And as with Abraham, of what we will see in the days ahead, idolaters. 
Yet as one author makes mention, quote, by grace, their legacy will be the savior of the world. Joshua makes mention as he recasts redemptive history for Israel. We made mention of Joshua last week, but I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm ending my time with you now. Joshua just, he, he makes mention um, recounting redemptive history for Israel and encouraging them to not be idolaters as they hence go forth. And he begins with uh, God calling our father Abraham from his idolatrous ways. You see, the truth is, whether we're looking at the genealogical record in Genesis 11, or we're looking at the events of Babel, or we're looking at the genealogical record in Luke, or we're considering our own lives lived in real time, the truth is, whether it's sinners of yesterday, sinners right here, right now, today, in the hearing of my voice, or sinners tomorrow, not a one of us is righteous. Paul emphasizes, again, no, not one. So then Paul concludes, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace. To the thought then that God is gracious to sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. The obvious question that you must lay to your own conscience is am I in Jesus Christ am I in him through the empty vessel of faith have I received him do I rest upon him For to be outside of him is to experience judgment, which in the final outcome will be complete and exhaustive. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice over your text of scripture. We rejoice as we come on Lord's Day to, to confess our sin together, to be assured by the ministers of the church that, uh, that you have heard. We, 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 have, we have prayed, we have received, we have, we have sang uh, of the great joys of your provisions. We, we have given back to you a slim and mere portion token of the great gifts you have bestowed. We've prayed together. We've then preached and sat and heard together. And so, Lord, we ask this Lord's Day that in the ordinary means of grace, you would do extraordinary things for me and for those here hearing my voice this very moment. According to your ordinary work, 
through your ordinary means, do extraordinary things within our lives that we would repent of sin that so easily entangles and we would endeavor by your grace and your mercy after lives of new joyful obedience. Help us in this task to know that as we look to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our King, indeed, to be hidden in him is to be nourished in grace and mercy. In his holy name we then pray, amen. Give you just a moment of quiet response.